Ah. I discovered a whole way, different way of being in the world below my neck. You know, I learned uh, what kinetics were and improvisation Mm. and speaking with my body. It was miraculous. Uh, It was just what the doctor ordered. Podcast Junkies, episode 153. Welcome back. It's Harry Duran. This is Podcaster's Voice Heard nationwide, worldwide, galaxy-wide. If you're new, if you're new, welcome. Welcome. This is the show where I have amazing conversations with podcasters of all shapes and sizes, and sometimes people just uh, associated with the podcast industry, and I've got the platform to have amazing conversations. And so I do that. I have them here on this show, and you are here, and I'm happy, and we get to share this time together, which is awesome. Isn't this fun? Aren't you glad you're here? Okay. Let's hop to it. Uh, last week, who do we speak to? David Ridgen, filmmaker at CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. He was trained as a documentary storyteller and a filmmaker, trained as a screenwriter, and he learned on the job at CBC as an investigator and a journalist. His show is Someone Knows Something. It was an amazing, amazing, incredibly well-received conversation from someone who is a pro in the industry. And uh, a lot of good feedback, a lot of, it's probably one of my most popular tweets, um, recent tweets regarding an episode that got retweeted. I think it was 30, 30 times last time I checked. I should check again, uh, see how it's doing, but it was, it was a really great conversation. Please check it out. Episode 152, podcastjunkies.com slash 152. This week, I have a conversation with a friend of mine, someone who's been uh, a friend of mine for the past couple of years. Um, he's at, we've actually done some work with him to produce his show, so he happens to be a client as well. But uh, I needed to get him on because his stories are just so amazing. Um, so we dive deep. He's an artist. He's self-producer and self-initiator. That's what he likes to call himself. And we talk about how he started the E-Travels podcast, um, his earliest memories working with a choreographer and a director. Why he fell in love with being a clown, not not kidding here, <laughs> his nonprofit arts company, Free Public Laughs, and how he was, in a way, the predecessor for what we now know as flash mobs, um, how being in costume allows you the freedom of expression, the time that Gino the clown, his alter ego, got arrested, how saying yes to opportunities led him to become an artist, and not having everything planned out is not necessarily a bad thing. We talk about that and how he's heading into his third and final act. All in all, we were able to have this in person here in Echo Park, and it's just a fantastic conversation. I'm really excited to share it with you. This episode is brought to you by Podbean. One of the areas in which Podbean is focusing is making their app better and better. They want to make it better for listeners, and they want to make it, therefore, better for podcasters. And that includes a big focus on quality content, discoverability, and engagement. And recently, they just added a partnership with Stable, where they'll include their weekly recommendations as one of their topics. So they're doing so much with curating content, improving the recommendations. I definitely encourage you to check out the app. Head on over to podbean.com slash podcast junkies and get more information about that. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for the retention hashtag and my way of seeing if you're paying attention at home. A lot of fun. And if you're new to the podcast, it's a little Easter egg at the end of the episode that you share on social media and let me know you're one of the cool kids. But for now, enjoy my conversation with the entertaining trolls. All right. This is a first, right? <laughs> so, why, why, why is that? 
uh, because uh, we are um, we are recording in Echo Park in um, the Barbershop Recording Studio. Is that what it's called? It is run by Scott Barber in <laughs> Echo Park. That would make Los sense. Los Angeles, that would California. Make, that would make sense then. So Eric Trules, Professor Eric Trules. Host, uh, Otherwise, just known as Truel, since he's now retired, <laughs> and even while he was working, was just known as Truels. That's the first time I haven't been able to get through an actual guest intro. <laughs> You're in trouble. <laughs> wow, this is this this is a harbinger of things to come in this episode. Truels, host of E Travels with E Truels, thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. My pleasure, really. It's a uh, I look at this as my one-year anniversary and uh, like a goal and a celebration and a pinnacle of having done something uh, and survived a year. And uh, to be on Podcast Junkies, like the industry standard of interviews, is a, a real pleasure for me. So thanks. It's been such an interesting journey. And I was recently at LA PodFest here and that was a year since the one where we met. At and LA Podcast at, Festival at the at, Hotel Sofitel. Yes. And this year it was at another hotel uh, downtown. And it was uh, yeah, a strange hotel. I think it was Bellevue. I forget what it's called. Someplace downtown. An older hotel. Reminded me of the inside of The Shining. <laughs> it was a bit creepy. <laughs> but um, yeah, so for the benefit of the listener, we met at LA Podfest last year. So why don't you tell that story of how we met? I will. I am a, a longtime uh, artist and self-producer and self-initiator, so that's sort of behind the story, because um, the uh, it'll be a long story, so you can interrupt any time. Uh, well, you can start start with the the basics, and then we'll we'll weave uh, the, the, okay. rest, the rest of the story in there. All right. So I went to something called podcasts and pizza. Uh, here in Los Angeles, it's a podcast meetup. You usually go, I found out, but you were not there at, at that first one and only one I went to. Valerie Geller, uh, a radio personality who likes my work, sent me there. Ben Adair is the host and organizer of Podcasts and Pizza. And previous Podcast Junkies guest. Ah, uh, great. And there were three guests that night. They were all comedy podcasters. Um, and they are the co-organizers of the LA Podcast Festival, uh, which I had never heard of. And it was my first podcast meeting. And uh, the LA Podcast Podcast Festival was, I think, at the end of the week, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, and I had just sort of jumped in and said, I'm going to do a podcast without really knowing how to do it much at all. Other than being a storyteller, I had lots of stories and I had recorded a bunch of them, uh, at USC with this grant I had. And, uh, but I didn't know how to get a host, which host to get. I, I didn't know much. Uh, so I felt like I needed and wanted a podcast producer. I walked into the hotel on the first Friday. I think I said I was only going to go one night and, I roamed around and I went into uh, what was going to become the recording space uh, uh, for the live interviews. And there were a couple of people sitting around at uh, opposite ends of a long table, not even speaking to each other at all. And 
Uh, I said, hello, my name is Drews. Uh, I'm looking for a podcast producer. Would either of you know uh, a podcast producer? I know it's a long shot. Uh, and if you happen to uh, find one anytime tonight, look for the guy in the blue hat. That's me. Uh, and introduce me. And they said, sure. Uh, I walked around for another half an hour, went to the line on the bar, uh, stood for drinks, and Z Holly, the uh, name also, of, also previous guest, the name of her podcast is the Art of Manufacturing, right? And she's also had a good connection at USC. She used to work for the president. She comes up to me, the guy in the blue hat, and she says, "This is Harry Duran. Uh, this is who I mentioned I might be able to introduce you to." And from that moment on, I glommed on to you and I uh, had sort of similar energy as I have today. And uh, I must have told you about myself and my podcast. And I said, I really need a producer. And uh, you didn't say you almost, somehow you indicated that you might help me out. And uh, I said, that's all I want. Uh, I'm going home. Uh, and you said, I need, I could use a ride home. <laughs> I said, where do you live? In Silver Lake, which is adjacent to Echo Park. And I drove you home and I found out where you lived. And uh, I stalked you for a, a long time, <laughs> meaning you invited me over to learn the tech technology of creating uh, and launching a podcast, for which I am forever grateful. And uh, in that way, you became my podcast uh, mentor and guru, and uh, I've learned a lot about podcasting mostly through you. So that's a great story, and I think it speaks to um, your interest in in realizing. I think there was a, there was a there's probably an inflection point where you were winding down your career. You're about to retire, and I think the reason you know let's let's talk a little bit about the reason why you decided to start a podcast because when you'd gotten to LA Podfest. You were well on your way to doing some of the production yourself and, and maybe talk a little bit about the team you had assembled. And so talk a little bit about the genesis of the actual podcast itself. That's not so hard uh, because it didn't like a lot of things in my life. Life is what happens while you're waiting for your plans to work out. You know, you might go to the LA podcast festival for, well, anyway, uh, I, I've been a, a the, I, I teach theater. I taught theater at USC for 31 years. I'd been performing for almost five decades in my life as a modern dancer and a clown and a storyteller and a filmmaker. So, uh, I had done a one man show of all travel stories. In January of 15, and uh, I had a big crowd and some of my former students, uh, one of whom, Jonathan Munoz Pruel, had read a great many of my travel blog posts on a, a travel website that I had since, I think, 2000. It was called E-Travels with E-Trules. Uh, asked me later uh, where I got that title from. And Jonathan said after the show, uh, which was really well received, uh, he said, Trules, I've been reading your blogs for a long time, but hearing them, hearing your voice is so much better. You have to do a podcast. And I basically said, podcast? What's that? You know, because uh, I think a lot of people from my generation, the baby boomers, are uh, a little behind tech uh, technologically and just not don't know the technology uh, or the uh wideness of the podcast field. So <clears throat> that's why I didn't know anything about it technically. 
so uh, it was my last semester. Going into my last years, I was on a phased retirement, and uh, they very generously offered the outgoing professors a grant on a project of their choosing. And I said, I want to do a podcast, and they gave me uh, a substantial amount of money, uh, which has sustained the podcast now into the second season. But uh, one of my colleagues, Phil Allen at the School of Dramatic Arts, welcomed me uh, open arms uh, into the uh, sound design uh, studio where he had three freshmen in, uh, I think, 2016. That's when I was starting. And he said, I'm going to assign them all to work on your podcast because it was good for them to learn the technology of podcasting. It was a different kind of sound design. It was a little like film scoring because of the way I uh, design uh, uh, sound design the stories. And he gave me these three freshman sound designer, one of whom conti has continued with me from day one, Alicia Bermudez. She does sound design. Uh, that means she edits the episode. She does sound effects. Uh, she does credit. She mixes everything. She's really... Uh, cares to become a professional and uh, she works with me professionally uh, creating the podcast then very oddly through payroll at usc my uh one of my financial administrators crystal Balthrop, a shout out to her went through payroll stubs of the school of cinematic arts where they have a lot of film scores she found a film scoring student who was on payroll at usc and introduced her to me absurdly, you know, by accident, and she has become the music composer, Amanda Yamate, and she is terrific. Uh, she listens to original traditional music, because a lot of my stories take place in uh, far off and far out locations, uh, and I uh, have her listen to gamelan music from Bali, uh, Cuban music from Havana, if my episode is going to have the feel of those places. And she goes off and scores and composes uh, her own music that captures the original, like you can't tell the difference. So uh, if you listen to my travelogues, they're full of music and they're sound immersive and it feels like you're there. If you're here in Echo Park, because one of my travel episodes is, was based on the concept, you don't have to go very far to travel, meaning right down the street, there was a Cuban festival in Echo Park. And uh, she not only captured the Cuban music of, of Havana, but also the gunshots and the roosters of Echo Park. And actually, that's what Alicia did, and Amanda created the music. So it's a, a really, I think, delicious and fun episode to listen to. It's one of my favorite episodes. I think I've told you that already. And I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll include uh, that at the end of this episode as well, because I, I think that's a great way. I know we could always direct people to your podcast, but I think that's nice when people are in the mood and they hear the story. It's nice to hear the back background of how something happened, and then hear the actual composition that came out as a, as a result of that. There's a really good podcast called Song Exploder uh, with Harishi Kesh. We saw him at, at, at Podcast and Pizza. And, I remember. Yeah, and he uh, decomposes a, a song into the, its individual stems. And after hearing the description and the story behind of where they found that drum beat, you just want to hear what it all, it just put, you can hear the song before and hear the description of how it was put together, and then hear the song after, 
And you'll experience it in a completely different way because you have the context and the backstory. You know, I think that's what's amazing and unique about podcasting. It brings us back to the oral audio uh, medium of radio. So uh, even, you know, I listen to a lot of books on Audible. I'm a, a big consumer of fiction and now nonfiction. So sometimes I just fall asleep reading a book. You know, you always do. And even when I read it, if you get a good reader, I just listened to The Godfather, read by Joe Montaigne. Oh, okay. And, you know, I'm picturing Pacino and De Niro and all these <laughs> characters. But to hear it, you hear every word. Yeah. And they don't have sound design, so it's all in your imagination. But, of, of course, combined with your memory of Coppola's movie. And uh, I've listened to many, many, many audiobooks, and I prefer to reading them. Have you found yourself listening to more podcasts now as a result of being a podcaster? I don't think I'd ever listened to a podcast before I started, and that was one of my assignments that you gave me, yeah. listen to podcasts. And I had the ridiculous uh, illusion, delusion that perhaps I was one of the only travel podcasters. But of course, this is not true. There are many travel podcasters out there. Uh, of course, there are a lot of artists of every kind, and all you can do is bring your own voice and your own vision to the table. So there's no one's travel podcast quite like mine, especially just with the uh, sound immersive quality and the music composition. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about the types of friendships you've started? Yeah, even in just uh, even in just the travel world, where you've connected with fellow travel podcasters. So that's where I was trying to get to and got uh, bumped into a, <laughs> a fence there. <laughs> so I started to listen to many podcasts, The Moth, and of course, I know This American Life by Ira Glass. And they were NPR kind of storytelling podcasts, which uh, set the model for me. And I, I hope mine is somewhat like that. Uh, then again, my episodes take a long time to make. So I only release the travelogues once a month. You educated me and said, if you're going to build an audience, they want more. They will want more than once a month. Why don't you do something behind the scenes? So that's what I call the every other week episodes behind the scenes. I think you were my first guest yeah. on the behind the scenes and then Amanda and Alicia were. And uh, that has grown from other travel podcasters who I got to meet just by listening to their podcasts. I introduced myself. We listened to each other podcasts. I met uh, a few of them uh, here in the, in the barbershop studio. Uh, I had done a great interview uh, with Travel Stories uh, podcast guy, uh, Hayden Lee. That was a good one, yeah. Yeah, who I met at uh, Podcast Movement. Okay. But then I met some people at Podcast Movement, like Shannon Moore from Podbean and Kate Erickson, who uh, produces uh, uh, Kate's Take and Kate's Take and, and EO uh, Fire. Yeah, John, she works yeah, with John yeah. Lee Dumas. Yeah. So it is like a, a family, and I see how many friends and people you know in the world. I still feel like a newbie, uh, but this is your family, and. Uh, uh, it's not – yeah, I come from the Hollywood world. I come from performance. It's so – I became an artist because it was about self-expression and creativity. Shortly into my early dance career, I learned that <laughs> – 
artistic expression comes at the great price of tremendous comp- uh, competition. And once you come out to Hollywood, it's a ruthless biz- business. Loyalty doesn't count. Friendship doesn't count. It's all about self, me, 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 me. And one of the most amazing things that strikes me about the podcast movement, and I don't just mean the convention, is both their language, where they talk about giving value first before mm-hmm. expecting something back, and the generosity and friendship between all the people that I've observed and started to meet myself. I think it's truly unique, and it's very amazing to me. What's your earliest recollection of performing? It brings up one thing, is that I had never performed all through, until uh, college, until after college. I was a very repressed kid. So my performance desire and language and need comes out of the volcanic need of explosion. I felt like a, a volcano who was repressed. So when I got out of college and I got a high draft number in, uh, so I could avoid the Vietnam War, First, I got in my car and drove up and down the country. So that was my first solo travel experience. I stayed on the road for six months and just went to every place I'd ever heard of or never heard of. But then I ended up in Chicago where I looked up an old uh, wannabe girlfriend. She had never, uh, (laughs) I had never realized that uh, unrequited love, but she was a great friend. And she sent me to a theater uh, right down the street in Old Town, Chicago, in, and I climbed the steps into an open, giant, like barn-like rehearsal room, and they were rehearsing this very strange avant-garde play called Naked Lunch by William Burroughs, and they had updated it to post-1968 Chicago. There had been this a big uh, Democratic convention there where it got a lot of attention because of the police brutality and the birth of the Yippies with Abby Hoffman. So I had long Jufro Abby Hoffman hair. <laughs> and they asked me as soon as I walked in the room, are you an actor? Now, I was not an actor, but I had done three months of a workshop, a dance workshop in New York. So naturally, I must have had the actor instinct because I lied and I said, yes. Uh, and then they said immediately, do you want to play the role of Abby Hoffman in this Naked Lunch production? And That's a uh, big role. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, just because I looked the part <laughs> and uh, – <laughs> but I said, wait, I'll let you know in a couple of days. And in this building, there were auditions for modern dancers. And to make a long story short, I didn't take the role in Naked Lunch as Abby Hoffman, but I became a professional modern dancer for the next seven years in Chicago. And that's where I first started performing and creating original work. We had a choreographer director, but in those days, you know, this, the late 60s, 70s, there was such a thing as collective, you know, make work together, do things together. Everybody had an equal a place at the table. So this choreographer who was a few years older than the dancers in her company was wise enough to create with us. And we made great contributions and it was such a uh, channel and avenue for my own creativity that that's what was great and made me move towards performing. Um, and then I eventually became a clown and a storyteller and a filmmaker and it's been nearly 50 years. How much of the current climate, the climate at the time, 
colored uh, the types of performances uh, the group is putting on? I think because our choreographer director, Shirley Mordine, who I hope maybe will hear this episode because I owe her a great deal of giving me this original opportunity. I was sort of unwashed and untrained and she needed male modern dancers <laughs> who were in rare supply those days and she took a chance with me. Because of her, we stayed in the dance studio. She was very interesting. She did dance theater before it became called performance art. Mm -hmm. This was the early 70s. And we were swinging wire sculptures and doing very unique, original, exciting work. The city of Chicago really took to us and we got great press. And we always talked about bringing our work outside of the studio, meaning uh, to the public in mm -hmm. some way, because it was 68 Chicago. It was 70s Chicago. We the people, power to the people, alternative culture, you know, no pristine academy. No, don't listen to your parents. Uh, don't respect materialism and money and all this stuff. So, you know, we wanted to be out in people's park, but we never brought our dance work there yet. Uh, one of my jobs in being a member of the dance company was teaching dance classes at Columbia College, where we were in residence in mm -hmm. Chicago. And one of the very last classes, I asked my dance students to bring in found costumes from thrift stores. And I went out and got myself a costume. I purchased some Max Factor white pancake. And uh, in that last class, I made us all into clowns, or my idea of clowns. And we went out of our studio on Sheridan Road and rode the L trains to downtown Chicago, and we created magic and mayhem in the streets. So I immediately fell in love with what I called being a clown. And since I did it in public and improvised, I always got lots of press and publicity. So it was always rewarded. It was easy to get grants in those days. Illinois Arts Council, when I moved back to New York, I ran for mayor of New York City as a clown candidate, Gino Camisi. <laughs> I came in fifth out of four candidates. That I might have said on some other podcasts. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the grants and the opportunity... I just grew up in a time where I learned not to ask permission to create what I wanted. Or if I asked, which I, I modify, I asked many times, but many times I was denied or ignored. Hollywood didn't want to cast me. No one wanted me to become a clown. Uh, no one uh, in the documentary film world wanted a new time documentary filmmaker to have a theatrical release in Los Angeles. Uh, I just came in with this tenacious New York, don't take no for an answer, <laughs> energy where I learned that I had to apply for my own grants, get my own funding, have my own company, market them myself. And I did this in the nonprofit arts world, which was the world that I grew up in. Sounds like a lot of those skills are very applicable in the podcasting world now. Uh, I guess that's an understatement. <laughs> Every podcaster has to have those skills. Everything but grant writing. Yeah. No, grant, the grants, I mean, you heard that episode. I did. As well. I did. Had, They're uh, just not as available for most podcasters. Yeah. You, We have Patreon yep. and uh, other schemes and funnels and <laughs> webinars and uh, different ways to monetize our 
uh, podcast, which I am a total failure at, but also mainly a non-participant in. Mm -hmm. I would like to monetize my travel podcast. And the world of travel, it's a giant world. There are so many advertisers. I have a ridiculous side story. Where uh, early in the uh, webosphere, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Google Ads came onto the uh, scene, and I had a, a up and running travel website. And uh, I guess they asked me if they could run their Google Ads on my website. I said sure, and it seemed like within a day or a week or two weeks or a month, I had so many advertisers on Google advertisers on my website. I was clicking away and looking at them and watching them. I thought it was, they threw me off. Yeah, you're not supposed to be clicking on your own ads. <laughs> yeah, what did I know? Uh, and I haven't had an advertiser since. You know, it also comes down to I've done so much self-initiation and self-promotion on my entire artistic career that, uh, you know, I'm retired now. I just don't have the hunger, ambition, or desire to sell myself as much as I did. So I'm trying to take a step back and share my travel stories and give people uh, uh, an immersive way to visit these cultures and places that they probably never uh, see or go to by themselves. Uh, But one never knows, do one. And along the way, I try to have a sense of humor and an artistic point of view. So uh I hope my stories are unique, and I hope people enjoy them. I, I really enjoy making them. Well, that street performance uh, actually has it has a name now, and it was it, you were probably early uh, to the game, but they're called flash mobs. I don't know if you've heard that term, but it, it started to become popular like four or five years ago. It's essentially a group of people that would go out into a public sphere, but they would blend in with the audience, and at a predetermined moment in time they would all start performing. Actually, not all. I do know what you're talking about. I love this when I saw it on the web. Yeah. I, I came to it, discover it a little late. But it, like in Grand Central Station yes. in New York. It's a good one. It's a great one. Only one person would do us doing something choreographed and repetitive. Then there would be two and yeah. four and eight. And eventually there were hundreds of doing these choreographed beautiful things. It was real public dance and... Yeah performance and uh i always wanted to do one myself i haven't yet they're, they're really great the the grand there's a grand central one where they all freeze and that's really fantastic because it's hard to videotape it they've, they've got to have people videotaping it sur, sur, uh like secretly uh-huh. and there's ones where they do stuff on this on the subway there's, there's a really fantastic one where at each stop in the New York City subway, someone dressed in a different Star Wars costume gets on. So in the first one, I think it's Princess Leia gets on. And then two stops later, someone dressed as uh, Darth Vader or Stormtroopers gets on. <laughs> I, I get all on the same car. So the riders who've been there for a while, and they're they like, keep on seeing these stars. They're court. like, what's happening here? <laughs> and then the Stormtroopers come and they take – and then Darth Vader ends up at the at the, at the two stops later. And then um, – they see Princess Leia and they're like, there she is. And then they grab her and they're just like amazing. It's so, but you know what's funny, Eric? I think it's, it's this idea of bringing levity into a person's day, which, which just brings a smile to my face. And you know how if you stare at people's faces on the New York City subway, I've, I've ridden the, the subway for years to work and people look miserable. You know, no one looks each any, and they don't look each other in the eye. And there's just moments of levity that I think just make a person's day. 
Well, you've touched my heart because that was my, the sole focus of my clowning. I, I don't know if I just said it, but I called it Free Public Laughs. Mm-hmm. That was the name of my nonprofit arts company, Free Public Laughs. And we got a lot of grants. And we went out once I, I discovered it in Chicago in that story I told. But then I moved back to New York in 1977. And I founded and directed New York City's resident clown troupe. And we got these grants to have public seasons, both summer and winter, where we would go out to announced places like Grand Central Station, Staten Island Ferry, Bloomingdale's, Yankee Stadium, or any street corner in New York, 6th Avenue and 54th Street. And I'd come with a company of clowns who had ridden the subway and Most people, I'd say 95%, didn't know we were coming, but because it was announced, you could follow us and you'd be in on the the joke and the levity, the planned levity. Uh, But we tried to transform the mundane and the pedestrian into the theatrical and magical and bring some levity into people's lives. When I first did it, before I founded the Clown Troupe, I would go out every day from the Hotel Woodward on 55th and Broadway where I lived. I would get dressed, ride down the elevator, wave to the people in the lobby who would see the clown go out every day and go out without passing a hat and just uh, improvise on the street corners around Midtown. Now, sometimes... People did extraordinary things with me, like Norman Cousins. He was the big editor for the Saturday Night Review. He Mm -hmm. brought me up to his office unannounced and said, go to it, Gino. (laughs) And I would climb the desks and throw the papers around. Here's a guy who uh, wrote on illness that laughter was one of the best cures. So that was a you you can run into many coincidences, not only on a podcast, but if you're a a clown in public. Well, you seem to be able to get away with more. I experienced that to some extent on Halloween um, several years ago in New York City. Uh, my wife was dressed up as Sarah Palin, and I dressed up as the Heath Ledger version of the Joker. Uh, and it was the one; it was the costume where he's dressed as a nurse in in uh, Batman: The Dark Knight. I think it was the second one. So, in the character's dressed as a nurse, but he's got the Joker makeup on. So he's got the white makeup on, and he's got a nurse's outfit on. So that was my costume, and it's. I'm sure this is what you experience. There's something that happens when you are in makeup and you're in public and you realize that nobody knows who you are. And you start to feel this freedom of being able to perform or just say something, what's on your mind. And and I inhabited the Joker character and, and I was on the subway and I remember saying, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Sarah Palin. <laughs> and then I, and I knew at the end of the day, like no one was ever going to know who I was. Um, and there's just some freedom in that. Well, you touched on uh, many things in uh, that little riff. Uh, the f- first one, uh, I, I guess, freedom is my favorite word in the English language. Because I felt so repressed, what I needed to discover was myself and a free way to be myself. So that's what I always taught in all my courses at USC in one way or another. And many people would see me clowning and they'd say, well, that's a, that's still you, but it gives you permission to do all these wild and crazy things that you always wanted to do that you could never get away with. Now, this is true, yet I was so committed to that clown character, it was me and certainly not me at all because Gino, who I always refer to him in the third person, was, uh, you know, a liberated uh 
character energy uh, thing in the world, you know, when he ran for mayor and he mm-hmm. was at Studio 54 and that was not me. It required a level of risk-taking and openness and wackiness that certainly I have within me, but it let it out of the bag and demanded it. So literally, I would w- climb a tree and walk out on the branch mm-hmm. and everyone loved it, but I'd have to go further. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have to go further. <laughs> and I never knew when the branch would break. Oh, man. But that's the kind of risk taking that a performer and what I try to do as a clown. I would sit in people's laps, steal girlfriends and boyfriends, direct traffic, all kinds of crazy things. I was arrested once uh, in the 59th, 57th Street Precinct, mm-hmm. Midtown Manhattan, as Gino. I didn't have any identification. <laughs> I just insisted without speaking. I didn't speak except through a kazoo that I was Gino Camisi and I was running for mayor. And what was I doing wrong? And did I want to be arrested? Yeah. Here are my hands handcuffed me and all the cops bought into it. Yeah. They said, what do you want, Gino? And and I was, they were bringing all their pals. I was inside the jail cell already at that point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was making them all laugh. It was a commitment on my part to be a clown that it was sort of inarguable. It wasn't like, okay, in that suit and makeup, I could say I was Eric Trules because I wasn't. I wonder how much of that is really you, like your your your, your nature. Like, is, is, is this the true Eric Trules that I'm speaking to now? Or have you been able to express... It's. I mean, I think it's safe to say that that is part of you. And there's a lot of societal norms that dictate what we quote unquote should or shouldn't be doing when we're out in public. And it's refreshing to see behavior like that because it, I think it, when people uh, are attracted to it, it's because there's something in them that's being repressed, I think. And they're able to see that someone can magically uh, exhibit that type of behavior and not really get in trouble for it. And it almost shows them like what's possible and who knows who you've inspired to to do something out of the ordinary. And it doesn't have to be to the extent of dressing up as a clown and getting on a tree branch. But, you know, you may have pushed them to, to speak up in class or just do something a bit outside of their comfort zone. I, I, I have wanted to, committed to doing so, to teaching that and uh, trying to practice what I teach, you know, not preach, but teach. And uh, that repressed part matching with the rebellion of the 60s has made my entire life uh, the focus of uh, trying to uh, go beyond convention, have people laugh at themselves, challenge authority. And to do so in a theatrical, magical way, I think that's what attracted you to me or allowed me to find you at the uh, LA Podcast Festival. I was sort of uh, lit and performing a little bit that night, as I might be now for all I know. (laughs) But the other thing you said, you know, yes, it's a part of me, of course, and it's a joyous part. Who doesn't like joy? But then again, we have so many different parts of ourselves, right? Uh, you have such a big podcast part. Now I suddenly have a big father part. Hmm. You know, I'm a first-time father at age 70 now hmm. to a 10-year-old boy. That's that's a trip, man. But uh, it, it's as amazing as clowning was for me to yeah. immerse myself in that. It's not all joy and challenge, and it's for someone else. So it's so different. But that's the trip of being a parent. That, that's an awesome thing. 
I just so it's something else I wanted to mention, you know, behind the clown makeup and behind your uh Heath Ledger nurse costume. Yes, the actor does uh, uh and the person can find freedom, but that's existed historically throughout cultures. That's what costume balls were. Nobody knew who they were in the cowls they wore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people would have romances and never know who they were. You know, it was that invisibility disappearing into costume and character that uh, has always been attractive and powerful. You've mentioned this a couple of times, so that's why I'm going to come back to this, this idea of being repressed in college. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, if, if you've ever thought about, in retrospect, like why that was. Oh, yeah. I've spent uh, most of my life in my own therapist chair. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I went to therapy, the, the therapist seemed to be more entertained than value I was getting. <laughs> so I just didn't get much value out of it. But yeah, I've spent my whole life. And even the travel stories are my perspective of these places. So uh, somehow... Uh, Ask me the question again. Just curious about uh, what was the source of the repression? Um, I was always trying to be a good boy. Okay. I grew up in the button-down 50s. That's what we were all rebelling against. Mm -hmm. It didn't look right, the white collar and the tie and the picket fence and the job in Manhattan by the Long Island Railroad train in the morning and back at night and uh, 2.2 kids and cars and it didn't look right. And I guess my parents did the best they could and they were loving in retrospect, wonderful parents, but they never pointed me at or asked me who I was, what Mm. I liked. It was all external. I was supposed to become a doctor, get good grades. And so I never knew who I was. Mm. So sometime in the middle of college between the turn on, tune in and drop out, That was a good prescription for me to expand my mind and discover who I was. And then when I didn't go to med school or take a graft deferment and became a dancer, I discovered a whole way different way of being in the world below my neck. You know, I learned uh, what kinetics were and improvisation Mm. and speaking with my body. It was miraculous. Uh, It was just what the doctor ordered. I don't think folks who were not raised in that era understand exactly how buttoned down the 50s were i mean we we, we see the black and white you know the the shows and the um leave it to beaver but to be to be living through that i, I can i i it must have been what can only be described as a seismic sh- shift in perception because to go from the 50s to the 60s like the 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 real transition between what those two decades from, from my history you know from what i understand what they stood for it, it must have been just a real shock to the system and, and scared a lot of people scared um, my parents yeah scared them and you know elvis and the beatles and and i can only imagine like when when people get scared they tend to swing to the other side of the, the pendulum and and really operate from a place of fear but um yeah, I mean, it's just it's just amazing to think that so much was happening, so many shifts were happening culturally during you know the, that that change from the fifties to the sixties. It must have been an incredible, incredible time to it to was. grow up in. It was, uh, and it's still in my bones and in my blood and who I am. So I look at the rest of the world who's not there with me as sort of odd creatures, 
and still and somehow back to conformity and convention and the pursuit of money and measuring success in those funny ways. Uh, but my story, the one I told from uh, my son, the doctor, to uh, hip thrusting uh, modern dancing Elvis, you know, <laughs> Because that's the part they cut off about Elvis the, on Ed Sullivan's oh, show. Yeah. They cut off <laughs> from his waist down because that's what was uh, yeah. being repressed in that's, the in the fifties. You yeah. know that kind of sexual American puritanism. Mm -hmm. And Elvis waggled his hips, and we learned rock and roll from uh, black folks. And uh, the the lid was was let off. And uh, that's where we moved from. That's what dance was. It was the freedom of expression coming from the hips and the pelvis and the body and sensuality and women's uh, women's liberation and sensuality because their sexuality, uh, they were given the same ticket to ride mm -hmm. that the Beatles and the era gave us. Is that what drove you was that what drove you to become a dancer because not not a lot of men at that time were becoming modern dancers i life is what happened to me while i was waiting for my I, my plans never worked out what became my saying yes to opportunities that came my way and uh i accepted so i never aspired to be a modern dancer but I aspired to find something that would let the cat out of the bag. So that first became a theater workshop in New York in the, uh, the seventies, 1970 on Waverly place that led me to meeting Jacob, the, uh, uh, Israeli dancer who was an apprentice for the Joffrey ballet who had a crush on me. <laughs> and I became a member of his dance company. And, and, and then I left the country because I met curly joe who lived in the ohm zig loft with me uh because i left suburban new york and the button downs into the countercultural of 1970s avant-garde theater daffy was a six eight ex-heroin junkie his wife was five one dancer norma and they let me move into their loft so that was uh I don't know where exactly I'm going, but my story is emblematic of the era, and it was seismic for the Woodstock generation. Yeah. Uh, that that release of rock and roll and marijuana and sex was the most powerful thing that ever happened to my generation, and I would think to a person if they gave themselves permission, had the curiosity and uh, desire to explore any and all of that. I think what happens now is, you know, as bad as things are and people see that there's a They're lot of bad too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's all in perspective, right? You've you've lived through some crazy times as well and you've lived through some crazy administrations and and I think it gives you perspective and I and I and I think you tend to see it as it happening in waves, right? We can't always swing too much to to one side because people people on that side would freak out and then we start to move to the other side of the pendulum. I think more and more now, people are becoming more accepting of, of different attitudes and different personalities and different um, experiences and, and opinions. But I think, um, is, does it allow you to put what's happening now in context, having lived through, through what you've lived through? Well, I don't want to open up a, a giant door into uh, politics and my view of uh, how painful it is to live through this administration. But with the perspective that you're asking about, it would seem, because it's always happened historically and in my time, that uh, this administration and our president will 
leaves such a mark that it will drive people to quite an opposite extreme that might be affordable health care for the whole country, you know, mm-hmm. that would be the opposite extreme of what's going on. Because that's what my generation did. We rebelled against our parents. I, pres- I presume that children have been rebelling against yeah. their parents since uh, they were children and parents. Uh, and it's uh, cyclical. It doesn't make it easier to live through the cycle. Uh, because the cycle is still painful and against your ideals and humanity. But the perspective that it too hopefully will pass, and of course that's the issue, if you go so far and cause a nuclear war or something, you know, then there is no more. So one really has to have – it's about choices and commitments, mm-hmm. life and uh, – how are you going to spend it? That's what I try to pass on to my students. And I, I know that my becoming a parent at this age is a choice and a commitment. Fascinating. I, I think with all the stories you have, this could easily be a, a three-hour <laughs> episode. I imagine it could. But I, what I invite the listener to do is really get more of the story because it's by listening to your podcast. Because through each of your episodes, I think what happens is you're you're taking us on a journey based on the location you've you're at at the time at the moment in time or taking us back to that moment in time and but i think what's also wonderful is that you're painting a picture of where you are in your life at that moment and so you're you're taking us having us live through that experience and i imagine there's people that listen that live vicariously through you and your podcast episodes because they'll never you know maybe even leave the country there's people that don't even have a passport you know we 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 tend to think that that's a strange thing you know because i love travel and obviously you do as well but there is, I, I believe there's a service you're providing for people that may not ever have that opportunity to step foot on that plane. Well, uh, that's certainly one of my goals and desires, so I hope that's true. Uh, I'm always amazed of how many people don't travel, don't think travel is necessary mm-hmm. or need it or want it to be part of their life, including some of my uh, uh, hosts on podcasts that I've guested on. They haven't <laughs> been much out of the country and and uh yeah it's, it's a travel podcast and they haven't traveled no 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 oh, okay no, these were no, no these were not travel podcasters yeah. i uh, thought it was maybe like the the armchair traveler <laughs> that would be a good podcast the armchair podcast yeah. uh but they passed on to me or i've seen it on facebook that there's a lot of fear and judgment uh, against travel Fear of terrorism, Mm -hmm. cost of money, fear of beating out of one's habitual environment, uh, new foods, new habits, new things to see. And that makes many people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why they go to Hilton's and Marriott's and eat uh, McDonald's to try to keep things as familiar as possible, which I think is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not the reason why I or anyone should travel, except to expand one's knowledge and comfort zone of every level possible, you know, history and dance and culture and just everything. And I think you could probably speak to this uh, idea of not having everything planned out, yet everything still have turning out well uh, in the end. Wow, that's a big one too, Harry, you know, because uh, I've been taught uh, that uh i have not been able to plan or make my life uh become anything i've ever wanted for it mm-hmm. 
it's become what it's become. Yeah. Uh, I never planned to become a clown or run for mayor of New York as a clown. I never planned to become a college professor or, or do theater or marry a woman 31 years younger for myself <laughs> from Indonesia who didn't speak English or bring an eight year old boy from Sumatra to be my son, adopted son. So that's the thing. Yeah. How do I keep this alive as I hand it into my third act, which will be the final act? You know, uh, one can fear and seize up and that you're not going to have enough money and the government is taking things away. Or I can try to coach myself into seeing life as unknown and what will happen should hopefully continue to be as lucky and fortunate and creative as thus far, even as, as Philip Roth, one of the great American novelists says, he says, aging is not a battle. It's a massacre. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to face, but all of those. That's intense. Who, yes. Most, all of those who are you know, looking at the, the back end <laughs> and not of a podcast. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, yeah. A couple of other questions as we wrap yeah. up. Uh, what have you changed your mind about recently? My expectations for my podcast. I'm trying not to demand so much from it or for it and try to accept uh, what it is and try to enjoy the process. And a little bigger than that, that I could ever, would ever want to be a father. Hmm. What is the uh, one most misunderstood thing about you? That I'm a prick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, uh, you know, I'm someone who has a lot of enthusiasm and joy for things and a lot of judgments and I can be judgmental and hard, but I I'm, uh, most of my students who stuck with me, those who didn't drop because they were intimidated, I can mm -hmm. be intimidating, uh, know that it's tough love. You know, those were my best teachers, the ones who had tough love. Uh, and it was really hard to get to their level and standards, but they brought it out of you. So that's what I always want to do. I naturally want to get it out of my son now, but at the same time, I don't want to take any of his natural joy and enthusiasm mm. out of him. So that's a real challenge and battle. But I, I am quite a... uh fun-loving, uh, creative, uh, even enjoyable guy that a lot of people might not know. <laughs> I, I can vouch for you. Don't worry. <laughs> well, uh, Jules, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And uh, it's been nice. It's always nice to do this in different environments. We are at um, the Barbershop Studios here in Echo Park. Uh, so it's fun for me because it's just a different environment, a different energy. Um, you know, we're doing this face to face, uh, uh, with, with our headphones on and we've got the, the Echo Park, uh, neighborhood out, outside the window and, uh, with it's just on school right down yeah. the street. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting. And, you know, talk about life's journeys. Like we had never even met as of, you know, probably about a year ago, you know, so who, who knows where life is going to take you. And I think, um, for me, it's just been open to possibilities and, and this idea of developing new friendships and always cultivating new friendships and new opportunities and being open, um, to allow things to happen, I think is what allows for, for experiences like this and, and for, for moments like this. Well, I just want to uh, say on your own show, which I think is a great show, uh, and so it's so giving to the podcast community, and you're 
uh, so much not about just yourself. And you've been so generous with me in just every way possible. And I'll bet a lot of people out there know that about you. It's not a secret. Uh, and uh, I'm just very grateful and thankful. And uh, so this is, uh, like I said, a culmination reward to be on your show, you know, to see your smiling face. Harry does smile a lot. <laughs> well, what's the best best place for folks to track you down? Uh, probably at erictrules.com forward slash podcast. Uh, but if you just go to the erictrules.com site, you can see all my ventures through most of my lifetime, including my film and my clown troupe, et cetera, et cetera. Eric Trules is E-R-I-C-T-R-U-L-E-S.com. Uh, I hope you'll go there and listen to some of the stories. And what we'll do is uh, something special um, this episode and something I may start to do with future guests is uh, include a little snippet of their podcast um, right here in this episode. So uh, we'll put in, I think the Echo Park one is one of my favorites. And so uh, we'll have you listen to that and then give some feedback to both uh, Eric and myself. Let us know what you thought about it. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at the at the level of uh, production um, and the care that goes into these episodes, which I think uh, surprises some people when, when they first listen to them. All right. Thanks for coming on again. And I uh, hope you have a fantastic day. You too, Harry. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Eric for coming on the show. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com slash 153. Check out our summary, timestamps, links mentioned, and some tweetable quotes. Uh, <laughs> Eric's definitely got some interesting comments that I think uh, it'd be fun to share. So check that out, podcastjunkies.com slash 153. Proud member of Podcastica at podcastica.com. See the whole range of shows. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil, cedarsoil.com, to see what he's been up to lately. Don't forget to support our episode sponsor, Podbean. Eternally grateful for the support they give the show, podbean.com slash podcast junkies. And again, uh, the offer still stands. If you need help setting up your show and you're signing up with Podbean, let me know and we'll get a half hour uh, of coaching free. Or let's make it an hour for this specific episode. <laughs> I want to help you guys as much as possible. So only if you've listened through this episode and uh, specifically this one, that's the only way you'll find that out. Uh, tune in next week. We've got a great conversation with David Steele, host of A Quest for Magic and, sorry, A Quest for Magic and Steel and Arc City. Fantastic uh, shows. Uh, one of them is about Dungeons and Dragons. We met at MapCon and we have a fantastic conversation. If you made it this far, I think you're hunting around for that retention hashtag I mentioned at the beginning of the show. So we're going to do it in honor of his roaming, roaming, roaming life, uh, traveling trules, a bit longer there, um, hashtag traveling trules, T-R-A-V-E-L-I-N-G-T-R-U-L-E-S, and you can tag uh, myself at podcast underscore junkies, and Eric at, at sign E-Trules, that's his Twitter handle, E-T-R-U-L-E-S, I'm sure he would love to hear it. Uh, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, it's at podcastjunkies.com slash eight tools, spelled either way. And if you've done that already, thank you. Uh, get that review in. I haven't seen them, and I know that's on your to-do list, podcastjunkies.com slash iTunes. Have a fantastic week, guys. Love you. Ahoy there, fellow travelers. Welcome to E-Travels with E-Trules, a personal and literary podcast of travel adventures and misadventures from around the world. This is Eric Trules, and thanks for listening.
I've lived in Los Angeles for almost 30 years. 10 years in White Bread Santa Monica and 23 years in multicultural Echo Park. I love Echo Park. It's me barrio. When I first moved here in 1993, it was full of musicians, socialists, Latinos, and artists like myself. There were gunshots and roosters crowing many nights of the week. My friends and even the L.A. Times asked me why the hell I wanted to move to the East Side. I said things like diversity, neighborhood, community, food, and history. But then, about five, six years ago, the hipsters and professionals started invading Echo Park with their well-known urban phenomenon called gentrification. I wrote about it on the Huffington Post, and this controversial story is an adaptation of the blog post for this podcast. E-Travels with E-Trules The Gentrification of Mi Barrio, Echo Park Summer 2014 Sometimes you don't have to go anywhere to see the world. Like just yesterday, I went to La Presencia Cubano Festival, the longtime arts festival right in my neighborhood, which celebrates the music and culture of the Cuban people here in L.A. The north side of Echo Park Lake, just south of Amy Semple McPherson's famous four-square temple, was mobbed with thousands of people, hordes of them draped in flags and T-shirts of Cuban, red, white, and blue. I felt right at home. You see, I first moved here to the hills of Echo Park 21 years ago. Actually, that's not a long time ago, compared to the likes of the Gasporas, who lived next door, uphill, for over 40 years. Or the Chins, on the other side, downhill, who've been here almost as long. Or Marion, just across the street, who died just last past spring at the age of 91. A left-wing politico who'd been living here on Red Hill for over 50 years. My problem at the festival was that I couldn't find a place to park. I drove around and around for maybe 20 minutes, but I came up blank. I'd been to lots of festivals in Echo Park, but this never happened before. I knew all the little nooks and parking crannies, all the secret parking spots down the alleys, in the grocery store parking lots, behind the liquor stores. Still, nada. I drove back home annoyed, but not defeated. I got on my old-school blue three-speed bicycle, and I pedaled back down the steep, almost unbikeable hill. I told myself, no problema. Because once I got to the park, like I said, I felt right at home. I roamed around amongst the crowds of every skin color. I ate fried plantains with creme fraiche. Then I laid on my back in the newly planted grass, and I stared up at the blue sky through one of the hundred-year-old giant eucalyptus trees. I relaxed in the middle of the crowd, 
I soaked up the piano brass Cubano dance music, the throbbing bass and the entire hubbub exploding and pulsating all around me. I felt like I was back in Havana, like in the summer of 2010. But today was even more Cuban, if that was possible, right here in mi own barrio, Echo Parque. But no parking? It was still sticking in my craw. I just couldn't get over how much the neighborhood had changed over the last 21 years. I remember when I first moved here in 93, after living 10 years in white bread, Santa Monica. Why are you moving, Trules? Nobody leaves Santa Monica. I mean, what are you doing? You're rent-controlled. Oh, come on, man. It's boring. I'm tired of my little one-bedroom with the same neighbors in a cookie-cutter apartment building. Yeah, it's $459 a month. Great. But it's not big enough or private enough for parties. I'm moving to the old Hollywood Hills of Echo Park. Three bedrooms, terraced garden, view of the Hollywood sign from the back deck. Bye-bye, Santa Monica. Okay, Trules, good luck. You see, back in those days, 1993, Echo Park still had the reputation of being a dangerous, gun-toting Latino barrio. La M the adult Latino gang of the hood, supposedly still hung out after dark in Elysian Park, just a two-minute walk up the hill. In fact, back in the day, it was hard to tell the difference between the fireworks in nearby Dodger Stadium and the random gunshots that always kept the neighborhood popping. Of course, when the pops came at two or three in the morning, you were pretty sure it wasn't from Dodger Stadium and Chavez Ravine. It was from just down the hill, from the lowlands of the still rough-and-tumble Echo Park Avenue and the iconic drug-dealing Magic Gas Station at the fork of Echo Park and Morton, where Alison Anders shot her film La Vida Loca. Right across from Chicken Corner, where Latino immigrants raised their hens, and where the crowing roosters woke us up every morning, any time between 3 and 6 a.m. I guess their rooster clocks were always a little haywire. Maybe because of the gunshots. My spot in Echo Park, at the top of Lucretia Avenue, used to be called Red Hill. For all the socialist and commie sympathizers that moved to the left-leaning hills of Los Angeles. That's right. Long before the hood became the trendy magnet for wannabe hipsters and musicians deifying the suicidal death of Elliot Smith, it was the home of social activists like Carrie McWilliams and Grace Simons and Leo Politi, not to mention Hollywood mavericks like John Houston and Steve McQueen, jazz man Art Pepper, and oddball artists like Jackson Pollock and Frank Zappa. These days, the hipsters are named Leonardo DiCaprio and Shia LaBeouf. But here's one radical not listed in Wikipedia. Marion's son. You know, right across the street, Marion? Her son was the lawyer for Sirhan Sirhan, the convicted murderer of Bobby Kennedy 
right here in downtown L.A. in the Ambassador Hotel in 1968. In fact, for the many months before Marion had to be moved to a nursing home, she would sit home all day long, blaring the tapes of the Sirhan Sirhan Kennedy trial. Loud, round the clock. It would drive you crazy, which Marion clearly was herself. But I guess she hoped, by blaring the tapes, she was immortalizing her beloved labor-lawyering son, letting all the fashionable newbies anywhere within hearing range know of her sons and the neighborhood's liberal bonafides. Now, ironically, right down the street from Lucretia on Echo Park Avenue near Sunset, there's a new Top Chef eatery called Don't You Know? Red Hill. But back in the day, Echo Park was one of L.A.'s first suburbs. It was called Edendale in the early 20th century, and it was the home of Hollywood's early silent movies. Cowboy star Tom Mix, Max Sennett's Keystone Cops, Fatty Arbuckle and Mabel Normand, and even the young, scuffling little tramp himself, Charlie Chaplin, who appeared in his first film on today's Glendale Boulevard. Long before Hollywood moved to Paramount, MGM, and Universal, Warner Brothers and Fox and its movie stars moved to Mulholland Drive. They were all right here in Echo Park, waiting for their close-ups, having their affairs, and creating their not-so-silent headlines. So, how did it happen? The gentrification of Echo Park. Well, at least from one longtime resident's point of view, that is, yours truly, it started right here, up the street, at the top of Lucretia Avenue. You see, there used to be a big, empty lot. Just three houses uphill from our house, same side of the street, looking gloriously out at the Hollywood sign and the Griffith Park Observatory, just a couple of hillsides over. This lot was completely undeveloped, stark naked, for the first 13 years I lived there. Every time I walked Clay the dog uphill towards Elysian Park, he used the empty lot and the arid dirt just as he liked. Nobody cared. It was Echo Park, man. There were old abandoned cars and tricked-out El Caminos out at the curb. You could walk down the wooden stairway from Lucretia to Echo Park Avenue to take the red car trolley to clang your way to work in downtown L.A. just 50 years ago. But then, one sad and unremarkable day in the year 2003, they, some forward-thinking and entrepreneurial investors, started clearing out and leveling the empty lot, bulldozing and jackhammering and building, until about a year later, the lot was no longer empty. Instead, it was the commercial site of three modern single-family residences, all looking arrogantly down over Echo Park Avenue, out over legendary Tom Mix Hill, 
over to the sexy and almost touchable hills of Hollywood and Mulholland Drive. But these three new modern houses were all seen by us local longtime residents as monstrosities. Huge, three-floor, four-bedroom, concrete and stucco boxes sticking out like sore thumbs in the historic neighborhood of 1920s wooden bungalows and 1950s one-story stucco houses like mine, built right into the hillside on long wooden stilts like beautiful architectural flamingos. Instead, these new concrete intruders hovering proudly atop the hillside, now snidely announced the formal and official gentrification of Echo Park. The old wooden adjacent stairway was renovated into more durable and permanent concrete. And these new houses were put on the marketplace for three quarters of a million dollars each. Maybe not much in terms of 2016 Echo Park real estate currency, but back then, more than a decade ago, a veritable fortune. And so, what happened was, in one upwardly mobile, fell swoop, these three new houses collectively changed the very fabric of Echo Park. They were quickly followed by Silverwood Properties down on Echo Park Avenue and Phototeca Gallery, and then eventually by the pricey vegan grocery store that sells celery root and hajiki to our wannabe hipster neighbors, who naturally wear their prescribed, short-brimmed hipster hats and walk their young hipster babies and their well-groomed hipster dogs on tightly held hipster leashes past my old school house near the top of one time Red Hill. And next, guess what? There was another empty lot on Lucretia. This one exactly across the street from us. The house that used to be there burned down three decades ago, and the Japanese family who owned it could never agree between themselves what to do with it. So, the lot stayed empty. And Clay the dog fought coyotes there. And we could see the glow from Dodger Stadium when the Stones came to town. We can even hear Mick sing and the fireworks over the tree line. But eventually, the property was also sold about six years ago. And soon enough, bulldozers came in to pull down the fruit trees and to level the land for the development of four new modern townhouses. The neighbors protested, and we lost. So now, every day, we have banging and clanging and earth-shaking as they build the four new townhouses directly across the street in the new Echo Park. They have all the permits, they follow all the rules, and all we neighbors will just have to suck it up and jockey our cars and somehow fit in 20 more new neighbors. In fact, 
Just the other day, one of my new neighbors from quickly gentrifying Echo Park, let's call him John, who recently moved into the hood less than a year ago, had the nerve to come over and knock on my door to demand that I turn down my music. I was confused. Having just come to the door expecting just another Jehovah's Witness or perhaps another magazine-slinging teenager when John, without even introducing himself, bluntly asked me to turn down my music. I took a moment, and then I just sort of laughed out loud. (laughs) Do you know what neighborhood you just moved into, my friend? It's called Echo Park. We have dogs here who bark 24-7, which, by the way, is much better than the roosters who used to crow here every friggin' morning whenever they liked it. We have bands full of musicians like Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry, who used to live right here when they were young and hungry. Bands that practice whenever they want to, day or night. Why do you think it's called Echo Park, man? Because the hills are alive. They resound, not only with music, but sometimes with gunshots and jazz and left-wing socialists playing endless tapes and the cacophony of illegal immigrants and yuppies and bobos, bourgeois bohemians, of which I may be one. So chill, dude. We play music here, loud music. We have to put up with our neighbors and their eccentricities. Just imagine if you had to listen to suicidal Elliot Smith or weird Frank Zappa practicing live music in the neighborhood 24-7. Just imagine that one of your neighbors was a heroin-addicted, anti-Semitic junkie who hurled insults at you from her doorstep 20 feet from your bedroom window whenever the hell she had the drug-addicted urge. Just imagine, pal, that maybe you've moved to the wrong neighborhood or maybe moved too soon before the gentrification of Echo Park was complete. Maybe, neighbor, you should go back to Woodland Hills or back to Nebraska where there's still some quiet civility amongst neighbors and no loud music, live or recorded. And just maybe you should think twice before you come knocking over at my door again, asking me to turn down my KJAZ or KCRW radio broadcast out the speakers of my back deck overlooking Echo Park Avenue and the sexy Hollywood Hills and your newly purchased overpriced home just below me on Avalon Street. Because, no, pal, I'm not going to turn down my music at 6 p.m. on a sunny Friday afternoon at the beginning of my weekend in the middle of my California paradise just because it's a little loud or a little inconvenient for you and your wife and your kids going to work at the Disney Animation Factory in Burbank or the Wells Fargo Bank downtown or wherever you're going to and from, earning you the privilege of living in our great and historical neighborhood now sadly known as as trendy, gentrified Echo Park. Yeah, that's what I said to this guy, John. And he said back to me, after his neck turned beet red and the steam came out of his nose, well, fuck you too. 
Maybe we did move to the wrong neighborhood if the rest of the neighbors are anything like you. Have a nice night, neighbor, I said as I closed the door on him. And I went back out to the back deck and heard that my music might have just been a tad loud. I went back inside and turned it down a bit. Disappointed in myself. What a hypocrite. It was all inevitable. The gentrification of Echo Park. The rents rising. The Latinos and the artists being forced to move to cheaper digs. The new bars and restaurants. The development of Chicken Corner across the street from the no longer magic gas station. Now a new shiny Chevron station across the street from the trendy Chango coffee shop. Yep, the roosters have been replaced with 45 new condo units, bringing maybe 500 new residents into the hood, marching up and down the hill to Dodger firework displays after all the home games. And just a year ago, the original Pioneer Chicken and Supermarket, here for decades, gone too replaced with the new Little Caesars Pizza and Walgreens across the parking lot from Red Hill, the restaurant. And just to add insult to injury, now Barragans, the oldest Mexican restaurant in L.A., on Sunset, just east of Echo Park Avenue, where the wife and I went every other Friday afternoon for the most delicious, free, fried chicken and half-price margarita happy hour in town? Closed to, replaced by a new fish and chips British pub, The Lost Night. I spoke to Mr. Barragan himself, the late middle-aged son of the original owner. He said, What can I do? The neighborhood is changing, and I am tired. I shook his hand and thanked him for all the years. I said, Yeah, the times they are a-changing, Mr. Barragan, but I'm not sure if for the better. So, for now, but for who knows how much longer, my wife from Indonesia and I from New York are still happy residents of Echo Park. We manage the rent with a subtenant, and we still enjoy the view from the back deck out over the Hollywood sign, where the sun sets over the Pacific Ocean in a kaleidoscope of color about 340 days a year. We plant vegetables, tomatoes, jalapenos, Japanese eggplant, crawling cucumbers, every spring in the top terrace of the lower 40. And we eat them all summer long until the Santa Ana winds come and blow during the brutally hot days of Indian summer. We still appreciate where we live, in my landlady's home, in the hills of Echo Park, because, hey, none of us really owns anything, right? So... Here's a toast to the Reds and the artists, to the Latinos and the newbies. 
We all live here together. Sure, both the old Cuban bakery and jewelry shop where I bought our engraved gold wedding bands are long gone. But there's still a few remaining pawn shops and 99-cent stores next to the Echo and the Echoplex on Sunset, the alternative rock symbols of the new Echo Park, where Angelinos flock every weekend to discover the new Jackson Brown or the new Elliot Smith. And yeah. I now have to bike to the Cubano Music Festival because there's just no place to park around the newly renovated lake with all the new condos and all the new residents. But hey, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, love from Echo Park. Still, me barrio. Original music composed by Amanda Yamate, sound designed by Alicia Bermudez, produced by Harry Duran at Folkcast. Please contact us with your feedback and to schedule an on-air interview. This podcast has been supported with the USC Capstone Grants. Special thanks to Phil Allen and the School of Dramatic Arts for their support.